You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me today is my frequent co-host, Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. How's the summer going, Cindy? Hi, Jeremy. The summer's going really well over at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in Newcastle, New Hampshire. We are just a little more than halfway through our season, and it's been a pretty busy one. The lighthouse is looking great right now because it was painted not too long ago. It sure was. Yeah, It's gleaming. It, it looks, is gleaming. It's fantastic. I was just over there a few minutes ago. We are going to start today's episode of Lighthearted by heading to the Pacific Northwest, and later we're going to travel down the East Coast to South Carolina. Back in January of this year, I had the pleasure of spending several days at the headquarters of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, the Point No Point Light Station in Hansville, Washington. While I was there, I sat down with Chad Kaiser for an interview. We heard the first half of my interview with Chad in the second episode of Lighthearted, and today we're going to hear the rest of the interview. Cindy, please tell our listeners about Chad Kaiser. Chad is originally from Michigan, where he worked for the Maritime Exchange Museum. He became general manager of the new Dungeness Light Station in Squim, Washington, in 2011. Chad is also a lighthouse preservationist and one of only six qualified lampists in the country who are approved by the U.S. Coast Guard to work on historic Fresnel lighthouse lenses. It's Chad's work as a lampist and preservationist we're going to hear about today. So let's listen to the second part of my interview with Chad Kaiser now. A lampist is a person who is approved by the U.S. Coast Guard to work on historic or so-called classical Fresnel lighthouse lenses. And I should mention also, uh, Chad, that I, I know you work on much more than lenses. You also consult on lighthouse preservation projects, buildings themselves, also the restoration of lighthouse artifacts as well of all kinds. So you've done a lot more than work on lenses, but the lens work is extremely fascinating. And if I could ask you, what led you to become a lampist? How did that come about? That came with my early experience with working at the Maritime Exchange Museum in Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, the gentleman that owned the museum had collected, I think at the time, the largest the largest private collection of Fresnel lenses, in at least in the United States at the time. He had, I don't know, it was over a dozen single lenses. And working on the lenses that he owned gave me my introduction to working on lenses. And uh, after working with him, working for him, and working with the U.S. Lighthouse Society, uh, I worked on many other lens projects and worked in communication with the Coast Guard on getting myself qualified to be a, an actual official qualified lampist. Um, so that's kind of where it started was with my, my experience with the, the Society and with the Maritime Exchange Museum. I don't know of any college courses on uh, lampism or becoming a lampist or anything like that. How do you how do you go about? How do you uh, get certified as a lampist? Well, the Coast Guard certification uh, includes several years of on-the-job experience or working with a qualified lampist. Uh, in my in my uh, particular circumstance, it took me boy close to ten years to qualify through the Coast Guard. And it's not only working on lenses, they want you to have background education, uh, working on industrial artifacts and material 
material experience, uh, classes on maintaining and how to treat, whether it be the, the brass and the bronze that the lens is made of or repairing glass and how do you handle that. Uh, moving large, heavy objects. Uh, I've had classes through AIC for uh, packing items and learning how to make crates and transporting the items. So it's it's fun, but it was it was involved. What would you uh, say to a young person who uh, says they want to be a lampist? Uh, what should they? What, what what advice would you give them? It seems that there are few young people that are interested in there becoming... There are few, and not many. <laughs> yeah. I don't know of any, but... It seems like uh, such a fascinating thing. I know, I know they're not making classical Fresnel lenses anymore, so I guess in that sense it would be a dying art, but still, um, somebody's got to take care of these, these Ab- absolutely. precious I'm, artifacts. You talked about the fact that I'm uh, part of a handful of people that do this, mm-hmm. and not all of us are young any longer. Well, you're Uh, the youngest one, I I believe. But what I'm trying to get at is uh, there's there's a lot of work out there more than than I'm going to do. So uh, it is important that others learn to do this. Would you encourage anybody, if there is somebody listening to this podcast who thinks, wow, that sounds like such a a great thing to do and I want to be a lampist, should they, can they contact you? Uh, They could... They, they can certainly Google contact me. Chad Kaiser. They can find you probably easily enough online. You can uh, find me online or you can find me through my contacts at New Dungeness or uh-huh. through the U.S. Lighthouse Society. So you wouldn't mind if somebody asked you, how do I become a lampist? No. Maybe, maybe no, give them some, some tips. Sure. Okay. Sure. Like I say, there's there's more work out there than, than I'm certainly going to take care of. Yeah. And there's there are others that are working on lenses right now and, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of work. Do you do you have a number of projects you've worked on, by the way? Do I don't have an exact number, uh, but uh, before this interview, we were looking at some of my past projects, and there's 60 or 70 projects that are on that list, mm-hmm. and that doesn't include everything. Yeah. Um, so. Wow. I was going to say, uh, what are a, a couple, and this, like I said, this is a hard question because there are so many you've worked on, but. Uh, for the in the interest of, of time, uh, what are what are a couple of the most interesting projects you've worked on? Which are, uh, I guess, maybe uh, maybe I should say, what are a couple of the fairly recent uh, interesting projects you've worked on? Again, you talked earlier about the fact that I don't only work on lenses, and there are a lot of other types of projects. But we'll try to sp- stick with lenses right now. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the more interesting projects that I've, I've done recently have included a, um, a fourth order flashing lens by Macbeth Evans that was loaned to the new Dungeness Light Station Association because a museum was closing. Uh, we signed an agreement uh, at New Dungeness for a long-term loan for this lens. And with, uh, with supervision, I had some volunteers that helped uh, with uh, movement and uh, Taking this, taking this lens apart, doing some conservation work to it, and then designing a display out at New Dungeness so this lens could be, could be put on display out there. And it's, uh, it's a really, really nice, nice display the way that it worked out. It's a huge acrylic box that has the lens and pedestal together. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I say, it was from the Cape Flattery Lighthouse. Yeah. And uh, it's a pretty unique lens because it is a Macbeth Evans lens and they only made 
That's in Pittsburgh, PA, yeah. uh, the only American company. that. The made only American company, and they only made between 25 or 30 lenses. The, the exact number is not clear, but it was a small number compared to the hundreds and hundreds of lenses from the British and French manufacturers. Mm-hmm. You showed me the, the picture of that display. It's, it's gorgeous. It's a really beautiful, great job with that. It turned out pretty well. I, I'm yeah. quite happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other larger projects I've been working on lately, you mentioned uh, the the lens from Point Sur, it's a first order lens. Mm-hmm. And the museum that it was displayed in uh, no longer exists. Right. And the state of California uh, and the the friends of the Point Sur Lighthouse contracted with me to disassemble the lens and and place it in storage for temporary for temporary uh, mm-hmm. temporary storage before it can be actually assembled at the yeah. lighthouse. So it hasn't actually been restored yet. It's just been dis- disassembled at this point. There's been some stabilization that's occurred mm-hmm. on it. There's been some conservation, but uh, there is still more work to do as it's assembled. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some pe- pieces that need to be replicated, and uh, the the lighthouse itself has some continuing work to do for environmental concerns, and uh, some bridges going to the lighthouse have to be have to be completed. Uh, they're rebuilding them. Uh, so that, that is an ongoing project. Um, there's also several lighthouses that uh, have been, that I visited in the last year or year and a half for lens cleaning. Uh, everything from a sixth order drum lens up to a first order flashing lens at the, at the um, from the Cape, uh, was it a point conception lens down in California. Oh, yeah. So those are a few of the projects anyway. Yeah, I'm sure you could go on, and I'd love to hear about more. But for anybody listening who may not be that familiar with Fresnel lenses, and I think we're probably, you know, we have a lot of Lighthouse buffs listening who are probably very familiar with Fresnel lenses. But if you're not, just, uh, first of all, it's capital F-R-E-S-N-E-L, pronounced Fresnel, after Augustin Fresnel, the French uh, engineer who invented them uh, almost 200 years ago. Google that word, Fresnel lenses, Google Fresnel lens lighthouse, something like that, and you'll find many beautiful photographs uh, online uh, of these lenses, and uh, people call them the jewels of the lighthouse. I think they're industrial art. Absolutely. I often call them works of functional art, yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, there's a real art form. They, they really are. And, uh, you know, worthy of study every bit as much as lighthouses are. So I recommend that people look up pictures of them if you haven't seen uh, seen them already. I mean, we could go on talking about lighthouses, and I hope we get another chance in the future, maybe, I mean, lighthouses and lenses, to talk more in depth about some of the projects you've done. Well, why don't we, uh, maybe we could talk just a little bit more, uh, if you want to say something about maybe another project you've, you've done that comes to mind that's not a, a lens project, uh, not New Dungeness, but maybe another interesting lighthouse preservation project you've been involved with that, that comes to mind? Anything you want to... Well, we talked about this briefly before mm-hmm. we started the interview that yeah. um, right here at Point No Point, uh, mm-hmm. after I had uh, after I'd moved on to New Dungeness, I was hired back here as the project manager for the last large restoration project they had out here, which included uh, stripping and repainting the lighthouse mm-hmm. and uh, restoration of the lantern itself along with some roof work on this lighthouse. It's a fairly small lighthouse, but, um, but it was a fun project. It included replicating some uh, architectural details that had gone missing over the years for the oil house, mm-hmm. uh, the, the vent at the top and the, the details surrounding the door, 
uh, replicating some of the latches and repairing some of the latches uh, with historic materials, with cast iron. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a fun project. It was relatively small as lighthouse restoration projects go, but, uh, but it was fun to learn and to, uh, to find new materials that could be used on the site that were, more, that were closer to the traditional materials used when the buildings were built. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the issues we deal with with the paint is that uh, the paint that was used in the 50s and 60s and 70s was elastomeric. That is, it holds the moisture in. And it was very important with this particular restoration to remove all of the mm -hmm. elastomeric paint yeah. and replace it with a mineral silicate, a potassium silicate paint that allows the building to breathe. Right. Because what was happening was the build, building was starting to degrade from the inside out because it was holding moisture in. Mm -hmm. And the restoration here has uh, several years under its belt now. And the results have been quite satisfactory with, uh, with the products that were used. Yeah. So that's one of the... One of the projects that I have, other than other than lens, lens sure. particular projects. Yeah, so. well, it looks great. Yeah, uh, you know, one more uh, question for you, kind of a, a general question. You're one of a small number of people who've worked in the lighthouse world on both the preservation and administrative side, as well as the technical side, and I think that gives you kind of a unique perspective. Uh, do you think lighthouses still have much of a role in navigation? in this country? And if not, uh, what do you think is their primary role today? I think lighthouses have developed more of a role as a tourist draw than they had in the past. Uh, but your, your original question was, you know, basically whether lighthouses were useful. And I absolutely believe that they are. Uh, you know, I'm, I also, I'm also a Coast Guard certified captain. And I'm telling you that when you're out on the water, it is very very important to have that physical aid. Uh, you know, the electronic tools that you're using on board are very good and they're great. And they're, they're your primary aids these days, but lighthouses are still a secondary aid mm -hmm. uh, and they're very important. Uh, if for some reason you've got a problem on board, it is very nice to be able to see that lighthouse, see that, that beacon flashing or that beacon, beacon rotating. Um, I think it's extremely important, but the lighthouse structures themselves, I think, have uh, have changed to a, they themselves have become a tourist economy on their own. There are people that go around the whole country, the whole world, specifically to visit lighthouses. And like the keeper's quarters that we're sitting in right now, this keeper's quarters, it generates money. It generates cash money to keep this lighthouse going. It's not the government anymore. Right. The government doesn't put money into this site. Uh, even though the government is the technical owner of this site, it's licensed to the county. And the county isn't the primary breadwinner for this property. It's, it's the, the keeper's quarters that we're sitting in right now. It's the same thing for New Dungeness. Um, we have a license. We have a 20-year license for the property, but we have to pay for everything. And we generate money through the tourist industry. Um, and it's important to remember where, where that money is coming from because that's what's going to keep lighthouses standing in the future. Bonus question. <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite lighthouse? I don't have a favorite lighthouse. I really don't. I mean, uh -huh. there are different aspects of different lighthouses that I, that I really do appreciate. Um, you know, spending as much time as I have out at New Dungeness, um, 
it's got a pretty soft spot in my heart. Uh, but, uh, but there are several lighthouses that have, that have really impressed upon me over the years. And one is, one is a pretty minor lighthouse. It's, uh, uh, the Munising East Channel Range or is the East Channel Lighthouse, uh, on Grand Island in Michigan. I may have mixed up the name, but it's on Grand Island in Lake Superior. And it's one of the lighthouses that I remember from my childhood. Uh, our family, before it was ever a national park, uh, our family spent summers on that island. And that was one of the first lighthouses I ever remember visiting. It was in terrible condition. It was falling down and, you know, it wasn't painted and it, it looked pretty bad. But I remember that lighthouse. It's something that just sticks with me as one of my earliest memories. And over the years, I've spent lots and lots of time on the Great Lakes and you know, the Pacific and the Atlantic being on the water. And I've seen many, many lighthouses. But, you know, New, Dun New Dungeness and, and the ones that I visited as a child in Michigan uh, definitely left, left an impression. Well, thank you so much, Chad. It was a real pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Now for our Lighthouse History segment. Last time we told you about William Converse Williams, longtime keeper of bleak and isolated Boone Island Lighthouse off the southern Maine coast in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Williams, known to his friends and family as Willie Williams, was an assistant keeper at Boone Island beginning in 1886 and became the principal keeper in 1888. Getting on and off the island was hard enough in calm conditions, but it was frequently a risky proposition when the seas grew heavy. On one occasion in April 1890, Williams and his wife with two workmen set out for Portsmouth in a sailboat. The vessel was overturned by a sudden squall near Garish Island in Kittery. The four passengers managed to cling to the boat until a schooner from Rockland rescued them. Not long after that, the government mercifully made Boone Island a stag station meaning the male keepers were the only residents much of the year. The families still spent much of the summer on the island. In an attempt to brighten up the island in summer, Williams brought barrels and boxes of soil out from the mainland every spring so that the families could enjoy a small flower garden during the summer. With the next winter's gales, the soil would always be washed away. Quote, I did not care so much about it myself, but it was hard for the children who passed the vacation months and were so interested in seeing flowers in bloom. Unquote, Williams said later. The keeper's son, Charles, served as an assistant keeper for the better part of a decade. During a shore visit in December 1900, Charles Williams described a storm that had swept the island a few days earlier. He had stood watch through the night in the tower, and he said that it seemed that the tower would topple over. The lighthouse shook, he said, with such violence that its teeth chattered involuntarily. One of William C. Williams' grandchildren, Mary Luther Lewis, later wrote an article about life on Boone Island. The keepers took turns keeping watch, she recalled, with rotating shifts. As a girl, Mary loved to roller skate on the island's boardwalks. Summer visitors from York were frequent, and her grandmother often made fish chowder for them. The family liked to sit on the rocks outside to eat their lunch, which typically consisted of lobsters and lemonade. Mary Luther Lewis's daughter, Eunice Lewis Evans, later wrote down some of the stories passed to her by her mother. Chores assigned to the children included dusting and polishing the brass in the house, picking caterpillars from the flowers, and killing flies. They were paid a penny per caterpillar or fly. 
Keeper Williams had a lobster trap for each of his grandchildren, and the money made from selling the catch was added to their bank accounts. There would be an evening church service, and everyone was in bed by 8 p.m. to be ready to start the next day by 5 a.m. When Robert Thayer Sterling wrote about William C. Williams in Kittery after his retirement in 1911, he observed, quote, To walk about his front yard without risk of being washed into the sea is a pleasure, and with that comes contentment. Unquote. Williams, one of the best-known lighthouse keepers in Maine, died in 1939 at the age of 93. Next, we're traveling down the East Coast to South Carolina, where for the past two years, Friends of Hunting Island State Park have been hosting tours of the Hunting Island Lighthouse and the other light station buildings at Hunting Island State Park in Beaufort. Twice each month, Ted Panyatoff hosts the 90-minute tours. Keeper Ted, upholding the lighthouse service tradition of welcoming visitors to the light station, hosts the tours in his reproduction lighthouse keeper's dress uniform. Ted Panyatoff is a retired naval officer and development engineer for the U.S. Army. While living in New Jersey, he helped found the New Jersey Lighthouse Society. For 15 years, he lived in Camden, Maine. Ted participated in the restoration of Rockland Breakwater Lighthouse and assisted with the development of the Maine Lighthouse Museum in Rockland, and he is the author or co-author of several books. I've known Ted for 20 years or so, going back to the days when he and his wife, Joe owned the Elms Bed and Breakfast in Camden, and he ran lighthouse cruises in Penobscot Bay on the Lively Lady out of Camden. Ted has lived in Beaufort, South Carolina since 2016, and he has assumed responsibility for the Friends of Hunting Island State Park's lighthouse operations. I recently had an opportunity to speak on the phone uh, with Ted about the public tours at Hunting Island Lighthouse, so let's listen to my conversation with Ted Panyatoff now. Ted Panyatoff, thanks so much for joining me today. There are a lot of things uh, we could talk about today, Ted, but I want to focus on the tours at Hunting Island Lighthouse. I was really happy to find out about uh, those tours because there aren't many light stations where a lighthouse buff can get an in-depth historical tour. Uh, how did those 90-minute tours develop at Hunting Island? Well, shortly after my wife, Joe and I moved to Beaufort, South Carolina in the summer of 2016, we joined the Friends of Hunting Island State Park. We then met Megan Stegmeyer, a member of the Hunting Island State Park staff. She is a naturalist and is responsible for the park's nature center. In addition, she coordinates the park's programs and events. When she learned of my lighthouse interest and in the fact that I had a reproduction lighthouse keeper's uniform, she immediately asked if I could host it interpretive tours at the lighthouse. I agreed, and we began the twice-monthly tours that fall. My wife, Jo, sometimes helps me, dressed appropriately as a lighthouse keeper's wife, circa 1900s. We average 10 to 20 visitors on the tour, but sometimes we have more, 
from the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, known as OLLI, at the University of South Carolina here in Beaufort. Now, uh, the lighthouse that's there at Hunting Island today is actually the second tower built there. The first lighthouse had some very interesting history, especially during the Civil War. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there during the Civil War? Soon after the Civil War began in April 1861, it was decided that the lighthouses along the southern coast would be of more use to the Union blockading fleet than local shipping. So many lighthouses were demolished. The Hunting Island Lighthouse was demolished sometime in the summer of 1861. What happened to the second-order lens that the lighthouse was equipped with is unknown. Now, uh, I understand there have actually been some archaeological digs at the light station. Can you tell us anything about the archaeological digs that have taken place there? Yes. The light station included a large two-story keeper's dwelling to house the keeper and his two assistant keepers and their families. This was a standard lighthouse service dwelling for three keepers used at many large lighthouses on the East Coast. The keeper's dwelling at Corolla Light Station on the North Carolina Outer Banks, which still exists and is fully restored, is an exact duplicate of the Hunting Island structure. Sadly, our keeper's dwelling was destroyed by fire several years after the light station was decommissioned in 1933. Recently, archaeological digs were conducted to uncover the foundations of the original house, and these have been outlined with modern brick so visitors can see the design of the original house. During the guided tours, visitors are shown drawings of the house obtained from the National Archives and photos of the interior of the Corolla Light Station house. The visitor then can get a sense of what it was like to live here as a member of the Keeper's family. You already uh, went over some of the historical highlights that are included in the tours, but I'm just curious, are there a couple of things especially that visitors find uh, most interesting uh, highlights of the history that are uh, included in the tours that you'd like to, 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 uh, to mention? Yes. One of the highlights that we point out that due to the beach erosion that was anticipated, the lighthouse tower and other light station buildings were moved about one and a quarter miles south from their original 1873 location. This was done in 1888-89 and took about a year and cost about $50,000 or about half the cost of building the original tower. Another historical highlight concerned the results of a severe 1893 hurricane that devastated this part of the coast and resulted in somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 deaths locally. A passenger ship the SS City of Savannah was wrecked on Hunting Island near the lighthouse. Fortunately, there were no fatalities among the passenger and, and crew of the vessel, and there was some assistance rendered by the light keepers from the station. However, further research in the National Archives done recently revealed that the keepers were actually fired by the lighthouse service the next spring in 1894 for entering the shipwreck and salvaging items without proper authority. 
So, uh, Ted, how would uh, visitors uh, sign up for one of these tours? Are, are advance reservations needed? Well, advance reservations are recommended if uh, a person does want to make a reservation. They can call the Park Nature Center at the Hunting Island State Park, and that phone number is 843-838-7437. The Friends of Hunting Island are working to expand the number of tours per month and hope to have one a week sometime in the near future. The dates are noted on the Friends of Hunting Island website, and that is at www.onelongwordfriendsofhuntingisland.org and in the calendar of events page on that website. Mm-hmm. At the moment, uh, the tours are always on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. In addition to the Friends of Hunting Island website, which I previously mentioned, uh, the uh, state park itself uh, has a website. Uh, it, it can be reached at uh, southcarolinaparks.com slash hunting dash island slash lighthouse. And that part of the, the local uh, Hunting Island State Park website has information about the lighthouse. Uh, there are several lighthouse websites, including the well-known Lighthouse Friends website that that has also a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And also, if you come to the park, uh, don't forget to stop at the visitor center uh, after you enter the park on the way in, as the lighthouse is featured in exhibit in additional exhibits in that building. Let me ask you, uh, are there opportunities for people if they live in the area or are interested in volunteering at the Hunting Island Light Station? Are there opportunities to do that? And if so, how would people go about uh, finding out about that? Well, www.friendsofhuntingisland.org has information about our organization and about volunteering and becoming a member. One perk for membership is that it allows free access to the park. Uh, You get a sticker to put on your car so everyone in the car gets in free. And the membership form that that, uh, you can fill out that's accessible on the website has a place to indicate an interest in volunteering at the lighthouse. And uh, when that comes into our uh, membership uh, director, uh, that information will be forwarded to me, and then I would get uh, in touch with that person. Well, Ted, I, I really want to congratulate you and everybody involved with uh, Friends of Hunting Island State Park, uh, everybody there at the Lighthouse. I, I am a Lighthouse nut, so I think it's okay to use that word for Lighthouse nuts like oh, us. Yes. Yeah, it's it's great to to be able to get this this kind of a tour where you get a good amount of information. Uh, from somebody as as knowledgeable as yourself. So again, uh, congratulations on uh, on these tours, and thank you for doing this. Mm-hmm. And thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, th- thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you.
We want to remind listeners about a special offer in the U.S. Lighthouse Society's online gift shop. In the online gift shop, you can find Lighthouse books, maps, collectibles, t-shirts, and baseball caps, and more. And until August 19th, you can get 10% off your purchase. Just go to uslhs.org and click on Shop. Then enter this coupon code when you place an order. The coupon code is LIGHTHEARTED1. That's L-I-G-H-T-H-E-A-R-T-E-D and the number one, all uppercase letters. And that will give you 10% off your purchase through August 19th. Again, enter the coupon code LIGHTHEARTED1 in the U.S. Lighthouse Society's online gift shop. Thank you to our guests on this episode of Lighthearted, Chad Kaiser of the new Dungeness Light Station in Washington and Ted Panyatoff of the Friends of Hunting Island State Park in South Carolina. And thanks as always to the volunteers and staff of the United States Lighthouse Society in Hansville, Washington, around the U.S. and around the world. Check out uslhs.org online to learn about domestic and international tours, membership, the J. Candace Clifford Research Catalog, and all the other amazing things the USLHS has to offer. Hello and thanks to all the volunteers and staff of the American Lighthouse Foundation, the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, and all the hardworking lighthouse people around the country. And a special greeting to the members of the Friends of New England Lighthouses Facebook group. And that is it for this episode of Lighthearted. Thanks for listening and keep a good light. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine.